Today I'm joined by Dr. Beth Smith. She is a professor at the University of Southern California where she directs the Infant Neuromotor Control Laboratory studying uh, the development of neuromotor control in infants. Beth, welcome to the Nature and Nurture podcast. Thank you, very happy to be here. Thank you for taking the time to speak with me. So uh, could you give a brief overview of your work, what you do sure. uh, when, when studying neuromotor control, what exactly that is and, and what age groups you work with and so on? Absolutely, and I will do my best to keep it brief, <laughs> but that's a bit of a challenge. Um, so infant neuromotor control is describing both the, considering both the neural aspects of motor control. So central and peripheral nervous pathways, um, information coming in to the central nervous system, information going out of the central nervous system, and then also the motor side of neuromotor control, which is the actual muscle activation, limb movements and patterns of movement. So we're interested in really how is it that babies learn to control their bodies and interact with the world around them? What shapes the process? What um, supports the process? What inhibits the process? And how as babies learn and their movements change and how they interact with the world changes, uh, then it, it's, it, it is a full circle is what I'm not saying very eloquently. Um, mm -hmm. The nervous system is changing, growing, developing, how babies move is changing, how they interact with the world changes. So then they start learning more things and interacting differently, which feeds mm -hmm. back into the nervous system and brain development. Uh -huh. So it's like a feedback loop and it requires them to get more and more complex as their brains develop and their bodies develop. Mm -hmm. Yep. So we're interested in infant movement, both as an input to the developing central nervous system. So how much practice, what type of practice is necessary and when in development, is it necessary critical periods, for example, in order to learn to sit, to crawl, to reach, to grasp functional skills like that. Mm -hmm. um, we also look at movement as an output of the developing central nervous system. So using movement patterns to identify when an infant is on a typical or atypical developmental trajectory uh, mm -hmm. and you know, wanting to be able to do that as early as possible because the, the earlier we can identify that an infant is on an atypical developmental trajectory, the earlier we can intervene and provide therapy to help support optimal outcomes. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So it must yeah. be very technical because you can't exactly ask the, the infant what they're thinking and feeling. That is one of the challenges and also exciting opportunities of the work we do. So you're right, there's no ultimate ground truth in what is the infant thinking, what is the goal of the infant? We have to make some interpretation or assumptions about those things. Um, but it also allows us great creativity in order to really think about how do we best design studies either observational studies or studies where we are providing some sort of intervention. Uh, how do we do that to create research questions that we can answer or, you know, answer to the best of our ability? So how did you first become interested 
in doing this type of work. Maybe we should go way back <clears throat> to your to your college and early education and then go from there. Yeah, you know, I thought about that question a bit after I got an email from you and we were talking over email a bit. And the, the best I can say is that I've always been interested in human movement. And as a child, I was very active in a variety of sports and um, other physical activities. And as I went through school, I was interested in physical therapy because I wanted to, to help people be physically active when they have some challenges or limitations to doing so. And as I um, went through physical therapy school and also just based on, I mean, for example, I worked as a summer camp counselor and taught girls how to horseback ride. So you're, you're teaching a motor skill. So I was interested in, in how children learn motor skills, um, movement, other forms of physical activity, sports, things like that. But it just, it kind of kept going back further and further. When you watch babies, they really are at the first stages of learning. It really is the foundation for, you know, you have um, the first motor skills that we observe um, crawling, rolling over. I've actually seen, uh, I remember seeing an infant who was not crawling yet, but she was able to roll and she would roll from one side of the room to the other in order to get to a toy. And I was just kind of fascinated with how babies are, how do they figure out these pretty complex motor skills, right? How, how much practice does it take? If you watch babies move when they're very young, they, they sleep um, for periods of time, they, they eat for periods of time, but when they're not sleeping and they're not eating, they're almost constantly moving in you know, short, short bouts of movement and short bouts of activity. And that just, if you, you watch it for a period of time, it's just amazing the amount of practice that they get and the different things that they try. Um, so I, I guess I just got very fascinated by the earliest, earliest learning of movement that we see is, is in infancy. And I thought, well, as a therapist, if we want to, to, to really help and to lay a foundation for healthy movement, uh, optimal movement for the rest of a person's life, we really need to be going back to infancy in the very beginning. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So then so working it was as in, a physical therapist, <clears throat> sorry, I cut you off. No, no, I, I was just going to say, so it really was an evolution of, you know, my own interest and observations and just um, an evolution over time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So working as a physical therapist, it seems much more personal and applied, like you're working with individual patients and helping them. And then working in a research setting, it's, it seems more distant and you're making these generalizable conclusions. And I get, I guess switching your age rate, your age focus to, to infants, maybe you have to do it that way because you can, it's, it seems, it doesn't make as much sense to be having like a one-on-one -on -one therapy session with an infant. Yeah. So, so part of what you said about, so it is true that in a therapy 
interaction, it is almost always a one-on-one encounter and you're interacting and providing an intervention that is specific to the person in front of you. Um, in, in a research context, you know, we actually are still interacting one-on-one and a lot of what we do is still individualized to the person in front of us, or, you know, it still is a one-on-one interaction, but what we're able to do in, in a research study, it takes a lot longer to do a research study where you're collecting data from say 25 infants uh, and then analyzing all of that, disseminating it as a publication. Uh, But ultimately when you've collected data from 25 infants, you can start to identify bigger picture themes and the, um, I guess what I'm trying to say is the impact can be larger and more widespread in a research project than it, than it sometimes, than it is in a one-to-one interaction. Now Mm -hmm. a one-on-one interaction can be incredibly meaningful and can be life-changing for that person you're interacting with. So it's not, it's Mm -hmm. not to say something is more valuable than some, one is more valuable than the other, not at all. But in terms of um, having a larger, more widespread impact, I see research as the opportunity and the way to do that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that if makes that sense. Makes sense. Okay. Uh-huh. So you move towards this research direction. So you could, you could make um, the work with larger populations and, and have these sort of generalizable results. How did you decide to introduce the neurological app, uh, component to it? Um, it really is just it neuromotor control. It, it inherently involves both the nervous system and the, I guess I'll say motor system or movement system. Mm-hmm. I don't think those are not two separate things, but that it really is just inherently, if you're studying movement and you're studying how a person is moving and potentially trying to change how they're moving, you need to consider the neurological aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Right. So maybe I, I could give you a, an idea of what I am, am picturing of, of mm-hmm. this type of research without really knowing much about it. So I'm imagining you could have intervention studies where you're maybe teaching uh, or, or intervening and, and teaching su- certain movement powder, patterns without looking at what's going on in the brain. So that I'm imagining like that's one option. And then looking at the brain is like another, maybe more mm-hmm. complicated option. So mm-hmm. that, that's kind of what I was getting at with that question. Yeah. So that's true. So sometimes, so in our studies, in our research studies, we use a number of different technologies to measure infant behavior. So we use video data where we can record the richness of the interaction and movement. So we can identify from video, is a baby in an alert, happy state? Are they in Uh, a fussy state? Are they crying? Things like that. Are they moving their arms or legs? Do they reach toward a toy? When does the reach start and stop? We can identify that from uh, video data. We use head-mounted eye tracking. So we can identify um, in video, we have one video that looks at the scene and one video that looks at the infant's 
pupil and we calibrate the space and then we can estimate by motion of the pupil where the infant is looking in the scene. We use wearable sensors, which contain inertial measurement units. Um, primarily we're using accelerometer and gyroscope data in that case, but we can analyze wearable sensors, sort of like a Fitbit for babies, if you will, um, by putting wearable sensors on the infant's wrists or ankles so we can measure um, how many times they're moving their limbs, the patterns of movement, whether one is moving, both arms are moving at the same time. We use electroencephalography to measure brain function. So there we're looking, um, measuring patterns of brain activity, relative power of the signal in different regions of the brain. Mm -hmm. And sometimes our research question is focused on the infant is moving um, in a certain way and how, how does their movement pattern change? And we might not, for that specific question, we really are focused on the movement. So we're going to use the wearable sensor data or the video data and describe mm -hmm. and quantify different movement patterns. If we want to know for our research question, is the underlying brain function producing the movement different or is the underlying brain function changing, then we would need to measure brain function in our case using electroencephalography. Mm -hmm. um, but there's, there are a couple other potential tools for measuring brain function, brain activity as well. Uh -huh. So you're right. Sometimes we do want to measure the brain function and the brain activity because that's central to the question we're trying to answer. And other times mm -hmm. it might not be. Uh -huh. So sometimes it's simpler and you're just like videotaping and maybe they have a Fitbit thing strapped on. And other times it's like a big headgear with wires and they look like little crawling cyborgs. <laughs> <laughs> Cute little crawling cyborgs. Yeah, that's a good one to add. Mm -hmm. um, so what type of questions do you answer and how do you decide what types of questions to answer? Like maybe it would be good to, to talk about where the field is at currently. Like how much do we know about neuromotor development and how much remains to be answered? Yeah, I know that's a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> so we know a little bit and a lot remains to be answered. So infant, there's two, two aspects to consider here. So infants who are born at risk or have a neurodevelopmental dis disability disorder. So something like down syndrome, for example, is identified at birth or before birth. Other conditions such as autism are not identified or diagnosed until later. And, you know, 18, 24 months of age and autism is actually a bit later than that. But it, you have a, a group, what I'm trying to, to say is that you have a group of infants who we know are at higher risk for neurodevelopmental disability start their life in a neonatal intensive care unit. They're followed in a follow-up program and they can be high risk for any number of reasons, preterm birth, uh, small for gestational age, trauma at birth, any, any sort of, a number of conditions. Um, for those infants, 
some of them, about half of them, this very, very broadly speaking, again, it, it's, you can get very specific in terms of risk factors and outcomes, but very broadly, very generally speaking, about half of the infants in the high-risk group will have some diagnosis of developmental disability or related disorder when they're 24 months of age. And the other, other half don't. So, you know, we really want to be able to identify within that group. We don't want to, to say to parents across the first 12 to 18 months of life, uh, well, you know, we're watching your child closely. We're not really sure yet. Um, they seem to be doing okay, or they seem to be a bit behind, but, you know, we really want to be able to identify very early what trajectory a child is on. And then, like I said, be able to provide therapy very early. But in order to do that, we need to know what therapy to provide. So how much practice, what type of practice, what should the intervention be? So if we can identify this child is on an atypical trajectory and the child is two months old, it's time to provide therapy. Well, what should that therapy be? We don't have answers to that right now. So that's where the typical infant, typical development uh, side of things comes in. How is it that infants with typical development learn and how much practice do they get? How do their, um, we, we don't know the answer to that question. So fundamentally, before we can start providing intervention to children with an atypical underlying central nervous system, um, it, it would be helpful to have a sense of what is it, how is it that typically developing infants learn these things and how much practice. Mm -hmm. um, so one of the very first studies we did was put wearable sensors on infants with typical development. Um, and they wore the sensors, one on each ankle for a full day. And we took measurements three times across uh, with two months between them. So for one infant measurements were at one, three and five months of age. For another infant, they were at six, eight and 10 months of age, for example. And all of the infants, it was between birth and before they started walking independently. And the very simple question, the simple hypothesis in that study was that the infants who moved their legs more on a daily basis would have more opportunity for practice and more opportunity for learning. And they would be the infants who would start walking earlier. So in infants with typical development, independent walking is the, the average is around 12 months of age, but the range for that is considered anywhere from nine to about 18 months of age. So there's within typically developing infants, there is a pretty big range in the time, the age at which they'll begin walking independently. So we thought, okay, we're gonna put these wearable sensors on, we're gonna measure how much infants move their legs across a full day in the natural environment. And I should say that before wearable sensors, so wearable sensors are a relatively new technology and they allow us to record full days of data in the natural environment, right? Because you can put them on, they're fairly unobtrusive, and you can collect 12 hours of data. 
before wearable sensors, your options for doing something like that, if you wanted to say, how many times does a baby move his or her legs in a full day, you could bring them into a laboratory setting and use a 3D motion analysis system or a video camera and collect you know, 30 minutes of data and then go through and do the analysis of that, which takes a fair amount of time, a few hours of time. And then you could just make an assumption, well, in 30 minutes, they move this many times. So I'm going to extrapolate and assume that that means they moved, you know, if they moved, you could extrapolate and make an assumption about how much they moved in a day, but that's a pretty indirect measurement. And, you know, if what they do in 30 minutes in front of you in a lab setting could potentially be different than what they do throughout the day. So the other option, you could maybe follow a baby around with a video camera and record all of their movements for 12 hours, but now you're getting into some, uh, that's very, very labor intensive to analyze all of those data. So oh, I don't hear you. Oh, sorry. So now that we have the, the motion sensors, they're both easier and more accurate. Yes. And, but we had to develop that technology. So the very first study we did was, as I described, put the sensors on, collect all the data. We had to create and validate a sensor-based algorithm for identifying infant limb movements. So we used video as the gold standard. So in the video, mm -hmm. we said the movement started there, stopped there, started there, stopped there. And then we um, created an algorithm to analyze the wearable sensor data. So in this first study, we were able to actually quantify that typically developing infants were moving their legs 8,000, 10,000, 12,000 times in a typical day. And there was variability within that. Now, again, mm -hmm. it would have been very simple if we were able to say, well, the babies who moved their legs more on a daily basis were the ones who started walking earlier, but that was not the case as you know, it's never that, that easy in, in science, it seems. Mm -hmm. So then we started thinking more about it. Well, you know, there are uh, absolutely other factors that influence development and motor development. So the infant's physical growth rate. So what is their body size, height to weight ratio, strength ratio, right? Considering those things. Um, what about, what are they doing when they're moving? So we're calculating that they're moving 8,000 to 10,000 times, but a baby could be, if, if a child is upset and crying, they often are moving while they're crying. That would not be a state where we think they would be optimally receptive to learning and learning about moving. So, you know, our, what's, what's their behavioral state across the day? What are their sleep and wake cycles? Are they um, nutrition? And then what about the variability of the movements that they're making? So you can imagine if infant A is trying to learn how to, to roll over he might try six or seven different movement patterns and try a bunch of different things and then figure out one that works. And infant B might be 
trying to do the same thing and he might keep trying two things that don't work over and over and over Mm -hmm. and not, not, um, explore and find something that does work. So this, this gets into a bigger theoretical question about how infants learn and how they explore. Mm -hmm. And it, it comes back to being able to measure how much they're moving across the day is the first step, but then we need to have more information about what types of movements they're making, their um, exploration, variability in movement patterns, behavioral state, all of these other important factors that influence development. Mm-hmm. So the frequency of leg movement, was it just not as big a predictor as you would have hoped or was it completely unrelated and it's like all other factors? Well, I don't, I, I think the answer is somewhere in the middle. So Mm -hmm. I think it's one piece of the puzzle. So if you are moving more in theory, you have more opportunity to explore and make different movements, Mm -hmm. but we also, we need to consider both sides of that because you could move less but have more variability or you could move more, but have less variability. So it's, it's kind of a, it's a proportion between the two. You could be Um, moving in a, in a targeted manner when you're trying to actually move, or you could just be and moving less than an an infant who's angry and just kicks when they're angry mm -hmm. (laughs) and not moving. Yeah. So I I think movement frequency is one piece of the puzzle to consider, but movement variability, behavioral state, nutrition, body length, weight, strength, proportions, it's, you know, it, all of these are important. Um, Mm -hmm. Parenting style, you know, are you a parent who picks up and carries your infant and holds your infant a lot? Are you a parent who allows your infant to be on the floor, interacting with toys, um, you know, in some households, there's not room or it's not safe for a baby to be just on the floor In other households it is. So there's a lot of many, many, many factors to consider. So mm-hmm. I think movement rate movement pattern is definitely one important piece of the puzzle that we're now able to capture, but it's not the mm-hmm. only piece of the puzzle. And what we need to do is figure out what are the relative contributions of all of the things that influence infant development in order to identify the best places to intervene. Uh huh. So you mentioned these wearable sensors are a relatively new technology. When was this first study that you mentioned? That study, I started when I was in Portland, Oregon. So that was Uh, I think we started that in maybe 2010, 2011, probably 2011. Okay. So we've had a full decade to, to learn more. Mm -hmm. So have we, have you explored any of these other factors that you were mentioning? We are, we are starting to, as are other people who study infant development in the world. And it becomes pretty complex because in science, the more, the more variables you add in the, essentially the larger of a sample you need, right. In order to be able Mm -hmm. to, um, 
do statistical tests or have statistical power Mm -hmm. to, to, um, test certain hypotheses. So it's, there's a, a challenge between wanting to measure absolutely everything and for reasons of feasibility, resources, statistical power, you can't measure absolutely everything. So we're, we're starting to do that, but it's a slow process because we have to, you know, first for the wearable sensors, first we had to create and validate the algorithm and that happened with a small sample. And of course, all of this is based on research funding, which is difficult and takes, uh, is on a pretty long timeline. So, you know, we first do the first validity studies, show the proof of concept validity, then you are able, we were able to get some money to do a slightly larger study. We were able to do an observational study, measure some of these things, start to determine effect sizes. And then after that had enough data and evidence to support getting money for, now we're doing a five-year study with a hundred infants. But it took, you know, we got that funding um, last year, right when, right when COVID was starting, which has been a challenge, but, um, it, the evolution of the decade was actually to get from the very first idea and the creation and validation through the next step, the next step, the next step to build up. And, um, I'm at children's hospital, Los Angeles. We recently received funding. We're part of a large 25 site study around the US uh, that is about we're recruiting, we will be recruiting women during pregnancy and then following 7,500 infants through uh, the first few years of life. And this study really is, again, I about all of the variables that influence development and all of the variability there is within typical development. And then you also have in the case of children with or at risk for neurodevelopmental disabilities, even more variability and other factors to consider. But Mm -hmm. this this large study with 7,500 infants, this is going to be a truly representative sample of the US population. And this is the kind of sample size that we need in order to, to really start to determine what are the most, um, which, which variables and which experiences have the largest impact and the largest effect in order to know where to intervene. Uh-huh. So it's like going to be an amazing upgrade. Yeah. It's going to be an, another decade though, because, <laughs> you know, we need to collect all of the data and then it will take even longer to analyze. So we have learned, we have learned some key information, but in, before we can really answer the question, what do we need to do? And when do we need to do it? How much do we need to do when and what it's still going to be another, at least what, 15 years, probably. It's amazing how a, a seemingly simple question, like how do babies learn to move and, and what, what factors help, help them learn uh, is such a complicated question there. Yeah, yep. Well, and it's, um, you know, it turns out to be a career for me, right? I've talked about when we started, when I first started that first study, I was in a postdoctoral fellowship. So I had done my physical therapy training, had done my PhD, my research training, and was doing a fellowship. And 
at that point launching my independent my independent scientist career mm-hmm. and now it's 10 years later and we are at a point where i'm working with other scientists and taking this to the next level to to really be able to answer the question but that is that is the evolution and the amount of time it takes mm-hmm. that's exciting so you mentioned are normally developing controls. And then you also mentioned high-risk populations that, um, is there an opposite extreme, like baby LeBron Jameses who are gonna learn to walk much faster and, and you can study uh, things that help them that help them be- become so advanced? That is, the, that is the, other, the other extreme. And it's not something that I have followed up on or that I'm, um, but it does exist and that's, it's an interesting question, right? How do you identify the next Olympic athletes? How early can you do that? And then what do you do to support support optimal outcomes and Olympic outcomes? I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it, se- it seems like a natural question to ask how much of it has to do with with like this these early levels of activity, like whether the kids who, who, who grew up to be athletic are just the more athletic babies or whether it's something that occurs later on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think there's also an interesting question about specificity of training versus variability of experience. Mm -hmm. And again, this is outside of my area of expertise because I do focus on infant development. But when I think of children who are older and, you know, specializing in gymnastics or baseball, I know there's debate out there about sport specific training versus variability and training and a variety of activities and when and how you want to, to focus that. And so I think that the same debate is, is, um, it, well, it's not the same debate, but I think that debate, what you're saying is true, that it does extend back into, if you keep going earlier and earlier and earlier, eventually you're going to be talking about in utero training for developing um, marathon runners or something. Uh Right. And there also might be a genetic component aside from, aside from the, like, I guess, genetic defects that can result in some, some of these disorders you mentioned, there might also be genetic factors that, that make, I don't know, babies more athletic or something like that. Even Mm -hmm. more curious. Yeah. It's the genetic variability within the population and certainly genetics, epigenetics experiences, um, exposures, experiences, all of those things are important and we're starting to understand some of them, but certainly I would say what we understand is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. So on the, on the cognitive side, you have these different sorts of specialties like left and right handedness or like, um, like different, different skills that you can pick up at different ages. Could, could you talk a bit, a little bit of that? If you, if, if you've done any sort of research on, on the different types of specialty movements? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So that's actually the study I mentioned that we just started during COVID is actually focused on the underlying question is about the lateralization and specialization of cortical control for reaching. And when we use, we use language development as a model system here. So 
-hmm. people have been able have studied language development much more in much more detail than motor development and Mm -hmm. language development we know starts pretty general and the specialization of Broca's area and other that that happens with experience and later in if you look at language development and brain function it is experience and input going into the brain is shaping some of that and Mm -hmm. you don't see the specialization in an infant that you see once a child is older so Uh we're thinking that the same thing is true for motor development so Mm-hmm. Me as an adult, if I take my right arm and I reach for my coffee cup, that is left motor cortex activation. And that is specialization of cortical function. So our hypothesis in this current study, we're measuring infant arm movements using the wearable sensors and mm-hmm. a number of the other variables that I talked about. And then we have EEG, we're measuring brain function. So we're measuring infants across the time period when they learn to reach for objects. So most infants will start reaching for objects somewhere around three months of age, but there's variability in that. Mm -hmm. And when they first start, they, it, they're slower to reach. It takes them a few attempts. They might get their hand on it and then finally secure the object, give them about three months of practice and they will be, you put the toy up and they go directly for it in a straight line with their hand pre-shaped, ready to grasp it. So it's Mm -hmm. for most infants, a lot of learning happening in that three months to go from initial reaching to skilled reaching. And Mm -hmm. our hypothesis is that those in So I should also say whether a child is right-handed or left-handed is usually identified somewhere around preschool age when you're starting to do writing and cutting tasks, cutting with scissors and other things. And some parents will Mm -hmm. tell you that they could tell earlier that their child was right or left-handed, but you, you cannot, um, look at a six month old infant and tell that they are right-handed or left-handed. And so what we think is happening is that the motor development and motor special, more motor cortical specialization is experience dependent. And that initially in infants, it's bilateral sources of cortical activation and that they're that, um, lateralization and unilateral specialization happens over time with experience. And so that's Mm -hmm. actually what we're, what we're measuring in the study. We have, Mm -hmm. we're collecting the brain function across the time period when infants become skilled reachers, we are asking whether mom or dad are left-handed, we're going to follow up. And when the infants are old enough to have a right or left-hand preference, and then for um, a subset of the infants, we assess in infancy, we will have them come back in once they have an established hand preference and record their brain activity again around three years of age. Mm-hmm. And the whole idea here is, again, measuring what are the changes in brain function 
the variable levels of um, all the other aspects that contribute to infant learning that I talked about. Mm -hmm. So the idea is you start off more or less ambidextrous and then eventually you develop a preference and then over time your brain sort of maps onto to that. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a nice way to say it. And there are some interesting studies that look at positioning in utero and, you know, infants positioned a certain way are more likely to be left-handed, for example, or, you know, there is a, a genetic, um, some genetic impact also. So as we talked about before, it's never just one factor or experience in isolation, but it is going to be a combination of genetics, experiences, exposures, um, mm -hmm. and ultimately from the, the standpoint of both a therapist and also just for parents in general, understanding what types of opportunities to provide and what types of experiences and opportunities are optimal for, for supporting infant and child development is really what, what we're after. Mm -hmm. So what you were mentioning earlier about the, the grasping, and, and I guess for older kids, it could be analogous to riding a bike. It's like you go through this initial phase of, I guess, effortful movement, mm -hmm. and then eventually it becomes this like sort of automatic process. Do we know what goes on in the brain when something becomes automatized? I don't know if that's the technical term for it. Yeah, that's, that's a really interesting question as well. And um, it, it's not, so I don't have an answer to that question. <laughs> I fine. do know, you know, when you are considering, um, it, you know, now you're really getting into adult learning. And if you're trying to learn a new skill as an adult, say you decide during mm -hmm. COVID that you wanted to uh, learn to golf because you could be outdoors and be doing something. Mm -hmm. It's, it's really interesting because, and it does seem like you have to put in a lot of thinking and effort and really concentrating and thinking about trying different things or moving your hips or not moving your hips or bending your arm or not bending your arm. Right. And it, it takes vast amounts of practice before that gets to be a subconscious, um, less effortful mm -hmm. movement. So I think we do have a sense of how much practice it takes for older children or adults. And, but what that process is, is like in infants, you know, presumably it takes a lot of practice, but infants are also, their brains are very, central nervous systems are very adaptable and um, more amenable to change early in life, more receptive. So maybe it takes them less practice. You know, now mm -hmm. you get into interesting questions about growing up in a dual language household, right? If you learn, right learn multiple languages very early in life versus trying to, to learn a language later in life. Um, but as to how brain activity is different, I mean, I'm sure that if you are actively consciously concentrating on something versus not the brain function, brain patterns would be different. Uh -huh. it, make, it makes yeah. me think that the, all of that, that hard work is still there. It's just that we don't remember 
much of our young age. So it's like, you forget about all of the, all of the struggles. Like, yeah. you know, those little toys where it's, it's, they've, they've got these hollow different shapes and then you put the different shapes into the matching shapes and you yep. can see a little baby, like trying to figure it out and they'll yep. work very hard at it for, for like half an hour or more just to figure it out. And it's, I can imagine they're thinking hard, even if we can't really tell. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. And it is, I, I do, I think that that motivation and persistence is one of the things that therapists will tell you is very important in somebody having optimal recovery or optimal outcomes from therapy is that that motivation and persistence is key. Um, so mm-hmm. I think the same is, is true in infancy. Now, how do you measure motivation to move in an infant and how, you know, the, y- you can, you can observe those things and you can quantify them to some degree, but you're right. Mm-hmm. You can't just ask them, <laughs> how interested <Yeah. laughs> are you in this activity on a scale of one to five? Uh-huh. So this is coming full circle back to the, once, once we've discovered, um, what infants are capable of and what groups are at risk, what does the actual intervention look like? Well, that's, I don't know the answer to that yet. So it, it comes back to, we need to know, again, these fundamental questions of how much practice, what type of practice. And once we, once we know that, then we can provide intervention in a few different ways. So one of the things that we're exploring in our lab is um, in collaboration with uh, computer science and robotics at USC is a socially assistive robot that we can set up the robot, program it so that when the infant makes certain movements or looks certain places, the robot responds. So a contingent, uh, contingent learning reinforcement scenario So that's one way we can train young infants. So you can train three-month-old infants, four-month-old infants um, by reinforcing certain movement patterns and certain behaviors. So that's one way intervention we could uh, set up contingent positive reinforcement using a robot or using a toy or using anything. Uh, You also can, you know, in the case of parents, encourage parents, okay, when, you know, if your child does this behavior that we know we're trying to encourage, then sing a, sing a line of a song that they like, twinkle, twinkle, little star, something like that. But the fundamental question of what movement patterns, how much, and when in the developmental uh, trajectory to provide that, that question still is unanswered. So I don't know what the intervention needs to look like yet. We're still trying to determine the answer to that. Yeah. Do you know if being a single child is a bigger risk factor for, for worse motor development? I don't, I don't know. And it's again, there, there are, uh, I think both advantages and I don't want to say disadvantages, but differences in being a single child or an only child, right? The, interactions with mm-hmm. adults and experiences that you have tend to be a bit different than if you have other siblings around, but mm-hmm. it also still comes back to all of the other things, parenting style. And, you know, some children who are single children 
are in daycare, others are not. Some have cousins and you know neighborhood children around a lot. So it's it's never. I guess what I'm saying is it's never that simple. Yeah, that makes sense. I was imagining like if if you have an older sibling who's who's walking around and interacting with toys, it could mm-hmm. it could maybe be a, a way to to sort of uh, to to mimic them. But mm-hmm. and then I was also mm-hmm. imagining when you mentioned the the assisting robots that could act as like a robot sibling to to follow yeah. around and help you. Yeah, absolutely. I absolutely think there's potential for that, and um, I think siblings can be you know, there's can be a lot of advantages to having them. And there can also be some uh, challenges to having them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this sounds like an exciting up and coming field. I mean, I know there's, it's going to be another decade or more until we get some, <laughs> some of these larger scale results, but I look forward to hearing about them. Yeah. Well, thank you for the interesting conversation and thank you. we can follow up sometime. <laughs> All right. I appreciate it. Take care. Yeah. Thank you. You too.